Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews, and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. How we are to one another engages the issue of power, of hierarchy, of prominence, of sexuality, of race, of class, all those things that have to be spoken together that can never be separated. Just trying to make rock artistic, you know, and sort of make art out of you know, guitars and, and drums and bass. Smart Arts. News, reviews and interviews about the arts with Richard Watts. And a very good morning to you. Richard with you here. On the program today, lots to talk about. Melbourne Fringe is in full swing. Uh, And after the week that we've had in the last week, I really think we probably all need our spirits lifted and upraised. So uh, we're going to talk about art and food. There's a show called Dumplings Darling that's on as part of Fringe. We're going to chat about that in about 10 minutes' time. We're also going to talk to the team from Bloomshed about their latest show, A Dodgeball Named Desire, on now at 45 Downstairs as part of Fringe. Post-Fringe, the legendary Australian playwright Patricia Cornelius has a work called In the Club opening at TheatreWorks from the 26th of October. Patricia will be joining me in the studio at 11am together with one of the actors from the show, Darcy Kent, to talk about a play all about what men do when they get into a pack. It's something that Patricia has explored before to great effect. And not just men, in fact. Um, what people do in packs and their behaviour. But I saw a production of In the Club at the Adelaide Festival several years ago. I believe this is the Melbourne stage debut of the play, apart from a staged reading that was on at the Athenaeum Library a couple of years ago. So looking forward to chatting to Patricia and Darcy about that. And to wrap up the show, Anne-Marie Peard will join us to review some more fringe shows, including a couple that I saw last night. I won't talk about them in detail now. I don't want to spoil the fun. But uh, trust me, there will be plenty of fringe to chat about on the show today. There is so much to talk about, so many shows. Over 450 shows in the fringe this year, I I do believe. Um, And it all wraps up this weekend, which means if you've left it to the last minute, oh boy, do I have some tips for you. Joining us in the studio... Uh, Anya Reynolds and Elisa Tanaka-King join us to talk about Dumplings Darling, which blends storytelling, live music and dumplings. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Let's talk with you initially, Elisa. Uh, Food has played a bit of a part in your creative practice in the past, hasn't it? Look, it has. um, It's it's a great love of mine (laughs) and I am classic for turning my great loves into a job, um, which, you know, 
it could could be considered ill-advisable, but um, it um, it snuck its way into my arts practice uh, largely because I think it's one of the most uh, welcoming and interesting ways of inviting people into storytelling. It's really unpretentious and everyone knows what it is to sit and share food. It kind of takes the high end of art out of the theatre, if you like. Um, and I think it provides a really even playing field for everyone to come and share stories from. And Anya, how did you get involved with this particular project? Because I know you best as a former uh, muso with Circus Oz. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. So I'm still doing my circus work, but um, when the pandemic hit, I, um, Elisa and I worked on a whole project together before we met in person, which was um, I was actually scoring a food related podcast of Elisa's, which was called um, Fenton's Feasts, and uh, so that was a work that was sort of reimagined for um, for a different platform due to everyone being locked down and the confinements that we know that happened in 2020. So we met each other remotely online. I, um, Elisa sent me the script, I sent music, and then at the end of that year, I think we finally met over dinner at my house <laughs> about <laughs> six months later, and we've been working together ever since. For, for both of you, that notion of bringing people together over food, over music and over storytelling really in some ways cuts to the heart of not just the, the impact of art but the impact of culture, how we share our lives with one another, how we share essential yet simple truths with one another. It absolutely does. We, we've both, um, we were talking just the other day about how we have both travelled extensively around the world and that includes doing um, artist residencies and something that is a big feature, I think, of, of um, travelling and, and, you know, working creatively abroad is exactly what you mentioned, how, how you expand your thinking and perspective by exploring different cultures. And I've found sort of um, travelling as a musician that um, the things that I'm able to, the ways that I'm able to uh, connect with people in different places, even if we don't speak the same verbal language, is, you know, the universal language of music and also the universal sort of experience of sharing food together. So, you know, when you're invited to someone's house for dinner or whatever, it's just, um, uh, it's these things that I think create community and connections and bind us together as humans. And I feel like, oh my God, now that is just more important and more vital than ever. What would you say? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, obviously food is such a friendly window into other cultures as well. Like it's such a great starting point of communication and understanding the history of a culture, the development of a culture, but also it's a uniting front. It, you know, there's no, there's no loss at what to do when food is placed on a table to share. We all understand that language. We all understand the generosity behind it. There's something very kind of um, welcoming and warm about being invited, particularly into someone's home to share food rather than in a restaurant even more so um, because it, it it is nutrition and that sort of care that, that we show immediately. And there's a certain amount of trust, I think, that's in it as well, that if you are prepared to invite me into your home and offer me food and I'm prepared to sit down and take it, trusting that you have prepared something beautiful for me, then there's an exchange that's already started there before we've spoken or done anything else. So, yeah, I think it's I think that's a really important starting point for 
so many things at the moment. Well, given kind of the, the, the international situation, the national situation, that idea of bringing people mm. together to talk, yeah. to share, to commune is clearly deeply important. How do you then go about creating a fringe show, an art event, out of some of these ideas? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, as an artist, I'm a pretty slow maker, so this idea has been a seed well, actually, well before the pandemic um, and has gradually evolved out um, into into what is the Fringe show. I think at the moment when I'm focusing on making work, and I think this is where Anya and I probably really relate on a making level, is that I'm... Tr- so interested in making work that is accessible and doesn't feel too elite or high art. Um, And so to try and make shows for festivals or for contexts that are really inviting people who might not otherwise engage in theatre or book, you know, the the posh theatre subscription, that it's not an intimidating experience coming in to one of our shows I don't think I like to think it's not um that where where the food sort of helps as well but also the way we introduce people when people are walking into the theatre for this show we say hello we say we introduce our names there's not stage lights that you know come up or a curtain that's drawn it's a very different sort of experience I think entering the space what do you, what do you yeah think absolutely it? it's not um there's I wouldn't say there's a fourth wall in this kind of setup and um and it's uh the I think the style that the show's created in is very it's conversational it's sort of like being in your living room and that kind of goes with the with how the audience are in the space as well and how we are it's sort of um this is the second uh time that we've performed we performed earlier in the year at Crestfest and it and being on stage doesn't feel like um being on a yeah kind of a um a theatre stage it's much more familiar and you know and when things go wrong that's also or or unexpected or you know sort of take a turn for um, something that we hadn't planned um, that feels uh, exciting and joyous rather than something that wasn't supposed to have so it's it's um I hope that it's I think it's a casual setting which I hope is inviting and it does feel like there's a lot of opportunity for us to kind of connect with the audience as if we were sort of having a picnic in the living room. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Which taps into the, I guess, the centrality of community in both your your artistic practices, uh, kind of whether it's the, the community created through music, through circus, uh, that celebration, or kind of I know, um, uh, Alyssa, with your own practice, that community, sustainability are also key aspects of your work as well. So clearly that idea of not just connecting with the audience, which is central to any kind of live performance, but inviting them into a space uh, to share a communal experience, which, again, in this case, does involve food. You don't have to eat the dumplings. No, you don't. It's okay. You'll still have a great community experience if you don't. It's fine. (laughs) In terms of serving food to people uh, as a performance, talk to us about that aspect of it. Because the Pony Cam show I saw last night, for example, at Fringe, involved the performers cooking a three-course meal while on treadmills for 45 or 50 minutes throughout the show, for example, and serving it up to people in the front row. And I was just looking at it going, oh, my, my analytical kind of arts industry brain was going, hmm, health and safety issues. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look, it, I mean, it, it's a time, not going to lie. It, uh, I think... Uh, it's not an easy thing to do in Australia. I've done quite a lot of food shows overseas and it's a lot less um, involved, I think. Um, but, you know, Fringe have been really supportive in helping us get all the 
kind of tick-offs that we need to be able to serve food. I think um, it's sort of, for me, I guess, in creating the show with having food served throughout, it means that it gives a bit of structure and shape to the show, which is actually really useful. It helps us design the arc of the stories and the rhythm of the piece because it gives us something that we kind of have to work with. There are considerations that we have to make that hopefully an audience doesn't notice actually too much. Hopefully it feels like it folds in quite naturally. But, yeah, they they are considerations like any other parts that you might put in a show, whether it's lighting cues or music, those sorts of things. It, it's just another element that we add in. And, and in terms of music and structure and shape and rhythm, talk to us about the music you've created for the work because you're performing... Uh, as food is being served, as stories are being told. Uh, is there a degree of improvisation in the music you've created or is it very much specifically music you have composed for the occasion? Uh, there is a score um, and um, so there's actually a, a little bit of both, which is how I tend to like it <laughs> in um, in live performance. So, um, so yeah, I um, I guess um, my role is very much to kind of support a lot of the, um, the food serving and it's quite fun watching Elisa um, uh, going around with a trolley of food to you know and just kind of seeing what different musical genres give to that um as a side note I've just recently been traveling overseas and met some extraordinarily theatrical waiters um particularly <laughs> in France and I was watching Elise and last night thinking yeah she's just sort of like um there's something lovely about watching the theater of food service I find and this show certainly does that so the music um it features uh, both. So I work both as a solo pianist and also with um, a, a kind of a solo electronic sax playing act, synthetronica. So I have music from both of those kind of um, different creative older egos. Um, it's a primarily uh, solo piano score, um, but we do have a, a kind of saxophone dance party um, in the middle, which is quite nice to sort of, uh, I think, because there's a lot of storytelling in the show. So the show is structured that there are um, periods of sort of listening and, and kind of intense focus and then we do break it up with um with a bit of dancing and um and song as well i took um my polish grandmother's um recipes for certain types of dumplings as inspiration for our musical number at the end (laughs) if you've just tuned in i'm speaking with elisa tanaka king and anya reynolds about dumplings darling which is on as part of melbourne fringe uh it opened last night i do believe what was the audience response I, think, I mean, I, I, I like to think it was really lovely. We had to rush them out a bit to get the next show set, but I think people seemed to enjoy it. Well, it was um, people were very engaged from the moment the audience walked in. There was quite a lot of banter between us and the audience, yeah. and I think that that's always a lovely way to start a show. You're all kind of in there together. There's um, yeah, so it was very informal, as Elisa yeah. mentioned earlier. Um, and um, and yeah, no, lots of smiles and, and laughter. It was a great way to start. Now. Dumplings Darling is on as part of Fringe until this Sunday, the 22nd of October. Performance is at 6pm every night, except the Sunday when it's an hour earlier, so that you can still go out and see a show, but be home in time for plenty of rest before the the working week, if you are somebody who works within those traditional hours. Uh, So 6pm tonight, Friday and Saturday, 5pm on Sunday. Uh, And the venue is the Fringe Festival Hub at Trades Hall in uh, a space called The Square. I don't think I've been to the square yet. Look, it's an interesting one. It's actually a couple of doors down from the hub. I'm not sure if how I meant to explain it because Fringe do want you to meet at the hub and then they will instruct you to come. They'll, they'll, they'll basically lead you down to the building 
a couple of doors down that has a gallery that's called the Steps Gallery there. Um, oh, I know that gallery. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so it's in that space, um, but they've called it the square for the f- festival. Um, so, we, But made it trade hall and be kind of ushered through yes. to your dining musical storytelling experience. If you can meet at trade hall a few minutes before 6pm, that would also be excellent. I recommend getting there <laughs> 25 minutes early so you can have a drink Listen to some gossip. Uh, I love eavesdropping on conversations about, I just saw this amazing (laughs) show, you have to see it. And I kind of add it to my list. Excellent. Speaking of which, um, any recommendations of other Fringe shows? Because there are so many friends and colleagues and industry peers making work um just to put you both on the spot oh gosh i know i'm i i'm a terrible fringe goer this year i'm actually uh living in regional victoria now and have only arrived at the festival yesterday so after bumping and show one i haven't seen anything yet but i am open ears open to any recommendations from from people as well for the rest of the week and i've been performing at the um festival park which is a bit of a circus hub this year down in um the car park at uh, Queen Victoria Market. So, um, so what is happening there? Gods with the Z, and um, I've heard great things about Ragnarok. The, um, the... oh, the wrestling yes. North mythology show. <laughs> <laughs> that weird fusion. I was just kind of like instantly intrigued. <laughs> so, I actually I haven't um, I haven't been able to see either show, but I have um, been outside for the duration of both and heard the audience responses. And so, I think based on that, I can vouch for those. Right. And speaking of circus, there's also heaps of circus happening over at NICA in Paran as well, where, in fact, uh, the Australian Circus Summit kicks off today as well. Ah, it does, yes. Uh, But I think there's five or six circus shows specifically programmed at and around NICA as well, including stuff by the the city of uh, Stonington have put on for So Soiree, their kind of fringe within a fringe festival. So, so much to see, but Dumplings Darling at Melbourne Fringe on until this Sunday, the 22nd of October, 6pm every night, 5pm on Sunday, Uh, just meet at the Festival Hub at Trades Hall and you will be escorted to the venue, I hope, by somebody with, I don't know, like a crisp white towel over one arm. (laughs) I'm sure we could arrange that. (laughs) Or just a hat that has dumplings on it. That would be amazing. A a giant dumpling. The fringe is a formidable machine. (laughs) It is. We should note the dumplings are vegetarian. The dumplings are vegetarian, yes. Yes. But also, like we said before, absolutely no obligation to eat to have a full experience. So if you want to eat and feel comfortable doing that, completely fine, but no need to to enjoy the show. I can vouch for the fact that they're delicious too. Excellent. (laughs) So whether you eat or not, you can still enjoy Dumplings Darling, uh, part of Melbourne Fringe. Go to melbournefringe.com.au to book tickets. It sounds like an absolute delight. Uh, Elisa and Anya, thank you both very much for joining us in the studio this morning. Thank Thank you, you, Richard. Melbourne's own. Triple R. A dodgeball named Desire is the latest production from Melbourne indie company Bloomshed. It's on as part of Melbourne Fringe at 45 Downstairs. But if you're thinking, oh God, there are so many other Fringe shows I have to see and I've only got until Sunday to see them all, a dodgeball named Desire runs after Fringe as well as during Fringe. So do not panic. I'm joined in the studio by Anna Louie, who's one of the performers of A Dodgeball Named Desire. Anna, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Absolute pleasure. Now, as soon as I heard about this show, I was instantly intrigued. So it's a battle royale between independent theatre makers from Bloomshed and 
a VFL football team. <laughs> That's right. We've actually recruited a bunch of sub-elite athletes to join us and they're playing against Bloomshed in order to compete in a dodgeball match. So we have lacrosse players, footy players, um, even an umpire as well, and a basketball player. So there's a real mix of athletes who um, switch in and out each night. Okay, which begs the question... Why? <laughs> so the show is really investigating the competition between theatre and sport, so high art versus high spectacle, and what it means to be producing theatre in an age where we feel like there is so much competition, whether that's between theatre makers or between sport as a whole industry itself. And often we feel like um, sport is so accessible and entertaining and everyone feels connected to it, where theatre seems obviously reserved for um a specific group of people who might be, uh, you know, quite different and unique and it might seem less successful than sports. So we're trying to see um, who might win through a dodgeball game. <laughs> <laughs> now, that concept in itself is instantly intriguing because conversations with friends interstate, for example, in Sydney, the divide between uh, the theatre world, uh, well, the broader world of the arts and uh, rugby is a really strong divide. In Melbourne, there's plenty of arts people I know who are also mad keen football fans. Mm. Uh, so uh, perhaps that division isn't quite as distinct in Melbourne. But you're absolutely right. That notion of the art somehow being elitist or uh, and only for an elite class of people, and that's the, the stereotype or the negative stereotype or the slur that gets thrown around when people like Andrew Bolt are talking about <laughs> the arts. But they don't bat an eyelid when they're talking about elite sportsmen and women who train for years to get to the pinnacle of mm. fitness to compete at the Olympics, for example. And each gold medal at the Olympics costs... Over, costs over a million or more in, in Australian st uh, tax dollars, for example. So yeah. that disconnect between kind of what is actually elite uh, and the art is a really interesting thing to explore theatrically and clearly playfully. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we were even thinking about how a big theatre might just hold 2,000 while a huge stadium is 100,000. So who's going to these theatre shows as opposed to who is going to sports and those events? Um, so, yeah, we're trying to to have these two teams within the show and really delve into how theatre has to constantly adapt in order to keep up with these times and whether or not it'll survive in this evolving world where it seems like spectacle is winning out. Well, and also the added complication that with streaming services now ubiquitous, again, it's kind of like, well, you could go to the theatre or you could just stay home and watch, <laughs> watch one Netflix. of 18 different streaming services yeah. or something as well, So, yeah. which is also presumably going to be a challenge for sport in the future as well. Why go and watch live sport when you can watch, I don't know, everything from darts to lawn bowls to... <laughs> to um, uh, British Premier League soccer on the streaming service of your choice. Yeah, we might just all be glued to our screens eventually. And we just saw that with the Matildas game too, like the amount of people who are watching that and paying attention at home and um, how much that has probably had a ripple effect on what people see as um, sport that they could enjoy too. Now, Anna, I have to ask, because the title of the show, A Dodgeball Named Desire, we've explained the dodgeball element Feels like there's a bit of a Tennessee Williams reference going on there as well. <laughs> yeah, you're definitely right. So we're really radically um, taking on the works of Tennessee Williams and reinventing it, which is something that Bloomshed um, is really interested in as a company. We take classical texts and turn them into something really new and exciting. And in this case, we're looking at a really canonical writer who's had a huge impact 
on the the theatre scene and the theatre world, and um, we're just twisting it in a new and different way. So, I mean, if we if people think about works like Glass Menagerie, Cat on a Hat, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Um, uh, streetcar Named Desire and so forth. Yeah, kind of really significant works, but also with a an element of camp to them as well. <laughs> yeah, our Tennessee Williams is quite a camp character in this show, so you can expect to see Tennessee on the stage um, and he's the referee as well <laughs> in our game. Uh, so Tennessee dodging dodgeballs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He, he might take a few hits, <laughs> not too many spoilers, but yeah, he's our referee. He's also um, playing the role of Stella and um, yeah, he's a very exciting character who people might not expect. Now, how did you recruit the sports people for this? Yeah, well, luckily, um, one of our actors and collaborators, Sam Nix, is a footy player himself. So we've kind of just shoved the responsibility onto him <laughs> because we're like, you're sporty. Find us some more sporty people. And he's managed to recruit lots of um, footy people from his team and who he's played with and just some other connections. He's bringing in some relatives as well. I think we've got some cousins and a sister who are equally athletic joining was there a kind of a sit-down briefing for them to explain what this was? And if so, what did you? How did you persuade them to take part? And what was their response? Yeah, I think what we did was just um, the main sell is just, do you want to come play dodgeball? And people are kind of keen because they have fond, nostalgic memories of doing it in year eight PE. And each night we do have to brief them about the the structure of the show because it's segmented into quarters, just like a, a real match is. Um, and they do have some blocking that they need to learn. But I think they were all really excited by the concept and um, how emerging sport and theatre in, in one show. And obviously the dodgeball aspect is just really fun. Yeah. Now, in terms of um, the work of Bloomshed, what is the appeal about contemporary adaptation and very often very loose adaptation? So instead of... Um, uh, I don't know, the Patricia Cornelius production a few years ago, uh, The House of Bernardo Alba, which she mm-hmm. rewrote as The House of Bernardo Alba, which was a fairly kind of uh, straightforward uh, adaptation to a degree. Uh, Bloomshed's work is clearly not straightforward ad- adaptation. <laughs> it, it's taking the kernel of an idea, for example, and, what, imploding it in some yeah, ways. Yeah, definitely. I think it's because we're really trying to make our work accessible and a big part of that is often just radically turning it on its head so if it means extremely high energy dance breaks and confetti cannons we're going to do it because we want to be able to um, really send the message in a clear way that's also the way that we want to tell the story so um, for instance we've adapted lots of different works like Animal Farm and Paradise Lost in recent years and yeah, we create comedies essentially by extracting the real essence of a text um, and bringing in messaging that we find is important. And as a company, we love to comment on capitalism and the environment and climate change um, and what it means to live in our current society where there's so many different battles pol- politically and socially, economically, and how we can create um, yeah exciting works that target audiences who might not necessarily um, engage with these classic texts to begin with. Why not tell new works to explore those themes? Yeah, I think there's something really beautiful about um, taking an existing text and being able to adapt it in a new way. And because there's so much richness in themes and um, content that already exists out there, I think that breathing new life into these um, works is yeah one great avenue to 
to tell stories. Um, and there's a lot of content that we can continue mining through as well. Yeah. Uh, and there's also, I guess, the added appeal then that for an audience who knows the original mm. text, uh, they can go, well, okay, I know this. Let's see what they've done with it. How has it been um, transmuted or transformed through the, the alchemical process of contemporary theatre making? Yeah, absolutely. And what we really find important is even if you haven't ever engaged in a text or you've not even heard of it potentially, like the work still stands and makes sense and you can still get so much out of it. Um, but I think there's yeah that added layer of nuance when you've um, engaged in text previously and you can make those connections. I'm speaking with Anna Louie about the new Bloomshed production, A Dodgeball Name Desire. It's on at 45 downstairs, located at 45 Flinders Lane in Melbourne, uh, and previewed last night and is running through until the 29th of October. So heaps of time to see it post-Fringe or kind of right now while Fringe is in full swing. Uh, tickets, 25 to $35, very easily and, uh, and, and cheaply priced if you want to get along. Um, uh, and I have to ask, Anna, how did the preview go last night? Yeah, it was really great. It was just amazing having an audience in for the first time because a lot of our show relies on audience interactions, so it's good to have bodies in the room. And I think they had a really fun time and we're very excited to open tonight. So the opening night of a dodgeball named Desire Tonight at 45 downstairs, just a few show warnings, coarse language, smoke and haze effects, strobe lighting, loud noises and flying dodgeballs. Is there any risk that audiences are going to get a dodgeball to the face? There definitely is, but they're very soft balls and they don't hurt. Um, there's also lots of opportunities for audience members to participate as well. So if you do get a ball to the face, you might actually enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then you can also, I don't know, uh, if you're an actor, for example, get your revenge by hurling it back at a sporting person or something, <laughs> exactly. or vice versa. So uh, it sounds fun. Uh, and Anna, before I let you go, I'm doing this to everybody uh, who I chat to about Fringe today, putting you on the spot. Any other Fringe shows you would like to recommend? Because yeah. there's so much and I can't there cover everything. There is so much. And because I've been in rehearsals, I've only really had a chance to see two things. So I'll mention them. Um, High Pony by Mel O'Brien and Samantha Andrews, a hilarious comedy, a musical comedy. And it's uh, super entertaining, original songs, very catchy and funny. And I'll also recommend Pony Cam's new show, Burnout Paradise. Um, there is, yeah lots of time for the audience to kind of participate in that show as well so i saw it really last night one. and i loved it <laughs> so much fun um and i will be reviewing it in detail with uh and marie peered at eleven thirty or thereabouts on the show today but a dodgeball named desire by Bloomshed as part of Melbourne Fringe. 45 downstairs, 45 Flinders Lane opening tonight, running through until the 29th of October. You can book by going to 45downstairs.com or to melbournefringe.com.au. Anna, thanks so much for coming in. Chookers for opening night and have a fantastic season. Thanks for having me. I hope there won't be too many bruises from all those dodgeballs. <laughs> Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Patricia Cornelius is, I would say, 
my favourite Australian playwright, uh, and she has joined me in the studio now. You can hear her chuckling away. Um, uh, and also with us in the studio is actor Darcy Kent, who is performing in Patricia's play In the Club at Theatreworks, which is running from the 26th of October. So people get a couple of days to recover from Melbourne Fringe and then dive straight back into seeing more work. Now, Patricia, you have written about people behaving badly, particularly a gang mentality, uh, a couple of times. In Shit, for example, we see a group of young women behaving badly. In Savages, we saw a group of uh, young men behaving abominably. Um, In the club, kind of, in some ways, brings those two different tribes together, in a way. We see the way women punish and shame each other, but we also see men, in this instance, AFL players, behaving horrifically towards women. Why do these kind of group interactions fascinate you so much as a writer? I, I think that, that because, mostly because they're an indication of our broader culture and there's something to be had in the behaviour. It's certainly not um, looking at them and, and putting the blame in, on them. It is about looking at the behaviour and how it's the, there's a complicity out here, out there in the world with the behaviour and the protection racket that goes around that behaviour. And so it's a kind of... I mean, also, that that, that behaviour is fascinating, how a group influences each other, how you might not behave quite so abominably if you were on your own. That, that, what, that stuff is pretty fascinating as a playwright, I think, and, um, and the way that you move... And especially because the way I write, I kind of like the rhythmic and so that kind of chorus, they, they enable a kind of chorus for me and I, I adore that to write for. Darcy, have you performed in any of Patricia's plays before? I, I actually haven't. Um, I've admired her work for a really long time um, but uh, watched a lot of her work, most recently My Sister Jill, which I saw on Saturday. Um, uh, and I, I love performing in it for that exact reason, the, the, cor- the choral stuff. Um, is something that I, you know you don't get to do as often as I might like to. There's something really um, exciting and powerful and poetic and rhythmic about you know a whole bunch of voices speaking as one in certain moments. Um, but it still feels very Australian and it doesn't feel hoity-toity. It feels you know uh, grounded and uh, and visceral, which is is it's just yeah a delight to perform it. Yeah, it's not iambic pentameter, no, for example. No, yeah, not at yeah. all. Um, because one of the reasons I asked whether you'd performed in her work before is, uh, for as an audience member, I'm now very familiar with that kind of poetic rhythm that Patricia brings to work. But mm. I wondered, as an actor, whether that rhythm is daunting, knowing that you have to get a proper grip on it, get a grip on the rhythm itself before you can then embody the character you're playing, for example. Absolutely. Um, doing those first few reads... Uh, you're just trying to get the yeah feel trying. Well, all we were trying to do was get the momentum um, of this piece because it's set over a, a lot of it over one night in this club. So there's this sense of a you know a beat going underneath it because there's music playing at all times. Um, yeah, character kind of for me came came after that. I, I started filling in the gaps um, after we kind of created this oral landscape of just this this language. Um, yeah, it's it's. It's it, it's addictive, um, and it's also great because we've got like there's six actors, and like I, you know it's it's not often often I'm in plays where I'm only there's only two or four of us, but to be able to have six voices in the space and 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 six bodies is uh, it's really exciting. Now, 
Patricia, this is the first time that uh, In the Club will have been staged in Melbourne, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So it had its premiere at the Adelaide Festival several years ago, um, presented by the State Theatre Company of South Australia. Yeah, directed by Geordie... Geordie Brookman. Brookman. Yeah, um, which I saw. And then it's uh, had a... Uh, more recently, it did have a reading uh, directed by your long-term friend and collaborator, Susie D, who certainly gets your work. Yeah. Um, what are your hopes for this production? It's it's a different director, for example. Um, and also, I believe there's some live music involved. Yeah. But, uh, Katan Potofsky is the director, and he's a, a young buck around town. He's been um, creating a lot of really good work, and a lot, lot of the time at Theatre Works. And so he approached me. He saw the reading that Susie presented, and he, he, he had a a passion for it and a, a, a sense that it's timely in this this city in particular, the heart of the AFL, to be able to address um, the concerns that the play addresses in, in, in the heartland, if you like, in the biggest protection racket on the earth. And um, so, yeah, it was great to, great to go with him. And he, he and his co-partner and uh, uh, producer... Um, have um, brought a brought a, a, a musical element into the work and matched it, and I think it, it's going to be sublime. Yeah. And I, that's rare for me. So uh, you, you work with a, a person that comes and does the sound and music, and that's sometimes wonderful and off, often wonderful. But but so um, often added in at the last minute, yeah, for example. Yeah, and it's sort of kind of to to booster. The play, in a sense, it's a bit often quite secondary. Whereas this feels quite primary. Do you think that, Darcy? You've been yeah, working with the music, absolutely. And I mean, I guess uh, uh, the artist Jaguar Jones has created these. The, 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 a lot of these tracks were, you know, pre-existing, um, and it's been actually kind of amazing how well they've melded with your your words. Um, it, and they're in, they're incredible songs in their own right. Like, um, so it, it kind of elevates everything makes it kind of i don't know mythical at certain moments um and it's been yeah it's been lovely to have it from the beginning you know um so often yeah those elements come right at the end but it's it's very much having that musical underscore kind of thrumming throughout the whole process um has definitely uh changed how we've approached the performances it's you know play with music it's not a musical but you know there's something interesting happening Mm. Yeah, when I saw the original production back in 2018, um, it one several things struck me about it. One of which, of course, is that uh, there are unfortunately far too regularly media stories floating around about uh, male footballers uh, groping, assaulting, or raping women, uh, and that is. Uh, something that is reflected in the play. It also made me think of the St Kilda schoolgirl case, uh, a rare example of a young woman getting her own back yeah. in some ways yeah. as well. Patricia, how conscious of you, uh, how conscious were you of kind of drawing upon stories like that to create the story of In the Club? I, I, de- I definitely uh, wasn't using that, that schoolgirl's experience um, exactly, but oh my God, she captured my imagination, and I, I thought, wow, you are going for it, and and you've got a lot against you. You look mad. They're trying to make you look mad. Um, you're tenacious. You're kind of hysterical. All those things, but 
you are so angry and you have a right to it and through that anger. And um, there, so I, I love the tenacity of it. I love that she turned up again and again. I mean, Lydia Thorpe is a bit like that for me. In uh, as much as I didn't agree with her with the, the bloody nose, but I just, the way that she turns up to stuff because there's a fire in her belly and she can't let it go is sort of, there's something really fascinating about that. And I'm probably because I'm weak as shit with that stuff and kind of give it up. I mean, I have a little bit of it, but not 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 nearly. I'm jealous of it, of how far you can go. Um, so, yes, I, I really thought about her a lot. And there's three main women roles, and she she was she's not truly one of them, but she's the, the kind of spark for one of them. Yeah, the character of Annie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in terms of Darcy playing kind of... Uh, the, the male characters in this play. Mm. Um, talk to us about de-rolling at the end of uh, rehearsals and how you will walk away from your character yeah. at the end of each night because it is not necessarily going to be a comfortable role to play. No, and it's. I think we've already kind of come up against that. Um, I think initially in rehearsals, um, you know, for me especially, I was like, okay, like I'm playing a, I'm playing a guy. These are the kinds of guys that I was actually terrified of when I was a little kid because I was quite shy. You know, I found a bit more confidence as I got older. But um, stepping into that initially was, I was like, whoa, okay, um, I'm definitely going to need to look after myself after this. Um, there's so many ways you can de-roll, come out of character. Um, for for me, um, a really important thing is to, you know, um, Bridge Gallagher, who's I'm playing opposite and we're kind of, you know, love interest, I guess, in the play. Um, we just kind of have to come off stage at the end of a run and go, hey, I'm not this person, I'm me. And, you know, we just kind of check in with each other. And um, I think we need, you know, we're, we're finding ways and, and workshopping ways at the moment to do that as a, as a cast because, yeah, it stays with you. I, I think one of my teachers said a, a long time ago, you know, uh, your body doesn't know the difference, you know. Um, and when you're really embedding yourself in, in a work like this imaginatively um, with language that is so powerful and so visceral, um, your body can just be like, oh, that, that just happened to me. And then you have to reassure it and go, hey, put your hand on your chest and go, no, it's all good, it's not real. Um, and, and also keep in mind why you're telling the story as well, um, you know, that there's a purpose behind it. Um, but, yeah, there's been a lot of laughs in the rehearsal room, though. I think that's also helpful that we, you know, we can come out of it and, and laugh and enjoy each other's company and then step back into that, um, yeah, that ugly psychological space. Um, and I think it's also hard because a lot of these men um, and the way that they're, they're written, they, they're enjoying it, you know, and they, they take pleasure in the power dynamic and, um, and that's difficult to embody sometimes, for sure. Mm. Patricia, in terms of writing a play like In the Club, which, uh, as we said, is on at Theatre Works on the 26th of October to the 11th of November, what did, as a writer, what did you want to achieve with the play? I thought it was actually quite a hard gig in a way because what, what am I going to write about? As, as if I'm going to say, oh, poor boys, you know, they get, they get you know, very powerful and they get really spoiled and then they do think dreadful things. You know, it's sort of kind of predictable what I'm going to say. So I knew I'm going to look at the women and I'm going to look at their behaviour and what, what sparks such hatred and such offence in so many people is women who want to have a good time, women who want to wear what they like, women who want to say what they like, so women who want to have sex. You know, all, all those things unnerve us, even still. It's as if 
there is a there's a cap on it, and the the, the old adage, well, you know, she asked for it, or um, what did she expect, or all those corny, dreadful things are kind of embedded in our culture in terms of women who want to go clubbing and want to have a good night out. Well, the classic kind of analysis of what someone was wearing, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, in terms of working on this show, Darcy, is, uh, is the company uh, uh, Bullet Heart Club and uh, which co-presenting the work with Theatre Works, um, is an intimacy coordinator being employed, for example? Yeah, we, we did. We had an amazing um, intimacy coordinator called Bailey that came in um, and kind of gave us a, a rough outline on how to kind of explore these things safely um, and... Uh, What's great about when you do get an intimacy coordinator and especially early on in the process is that what it affords is that you can actually have a huge amount of freedom. Once people have set their boundaries, um, then you can play fully and uh, expressively and um, within those boundaries. Um, So, yeah, Bailey did... We had an incredible uh, session with Bailey that went over about half a day and, um, yeah, it's informed a huge amount of the process since then. Um, you know, because it's physical and because there's this musical element as well, you know, we're doing some lifts, we're grabbing each other, you know, there's a bit of like throwing each other around and stuff like that. Um, and um, that's exciting, but, you know, it's also you've, you've got to be able to find a way to explore it um, safely because you're repeating it again and again and again. You know, it's not just a one-off thing. Um, so, yeah, I think everyone's feeling... Uh, it, it, what it's resulted in is meant it's, it's a really exciting rehearsal room because we feel safe to kind of... Uh, you know, push a little further into those those more uncomfortable places um, because we've set those boundaries with each other. You know? One of the things that intrigued me on seeing the play originally is the fact that when the female characters are introduced, they're the, the three women, they're three very different women, they're introduced as individuals. The football players, when they're first introduced, uh, were introduced as a pack, as mm. a mob, moving as one, talking as one, because that's how football is played. You are part of a team, you are part of a collective, and it's only slowly over time that the play then gives us more of a sense of the, the individuals who, who make up the pack, kind of the, I don't know, the, the, uh, the, the ageing war horse, the, the innocent and the, the more angry and entitled character. So, Patricia, talk to us about that aspect of the writing. Of, uh, was, again, was that something... That, a deliberate and conscious first we we introduce them as a collective uh, and only get to know them as individuals over time yeah I, I think to have kept them in that coral or the the team the group work would have kind of um, made it made, made it too simple and made it um, without any um, kind of personality and and it's the recognition of, I think the character Darcy plays is kind of the saddest, really, because there was there was such potential in a really corny, romantic way for him to experience something quite loving. And no matter how long it lasts, it was potentially very loving. And he, well, without giving things away, betrays that. And that 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 sort of. Um, Fabulous to witness, really. I mean, it's, it's funny how with, with the play and with, with the incidents of what happened with footballers, my greatest motivation really was how I personally would do this thing where I would feel sorry for the, the footballer. And I think you know, I had to kind of train myself out. I was going, oh, you've just wrecked your career and you've going to buy a house at the end of the season. All this really, really, why'd you do that? And that kind of, instead of 
you know... Instead of, you bastard. Yeah, yeah. I was going to go worse than that, but and on radio. And then you're sort of just um, protecting, protecting young men. And, That's and the not culture thinking, we are raised in. Yeah. Collectively, yeah. And not really... And the, first, the first instance isn't towards her. It isn't going... You owe her. You go down. Finish. You've done wrong, and that's it. Um, it's just um, interesting how these things creep up. Mm. Um, is there a movement coach? Uh, have you, or have you got someone yeah. who plays AFL on the team, for example? Um, what VFL? Uh, well, no, no, we act, we don't. But we do have Mia, uh, a fabulous choreographer, who's kind of. Um, been in the in the rehearsal room every single day, which has been amazing because it kind of it's so kinetic. It, every scene kind of bleeds into itself, and you know we do have six people in the cast, which is great. You know, slightly bigger than normal, but you know we're trying to portray an entire club. You know, so it's like okay, what you're in the you're at the front of the stage, they're doing a scene. What can we be doing? Are we vaping in the corner? Are we you know doing a line or whatever it is? There's this 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 we have to kind of keep this constant movement going. So it's it's been great to have the choreographer. Um, we don't have an AFL, uh, you know, player on in the in the in the group, but we all three boys went uh, and did some some training together before we started rehearsals, and uh, yeah, it really gave me an appreciation for how hard those guys go. I was knackered after about twenty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, how the hell do they do that for for hours on end? So yeah, big respect to you know what they're what they're. Uh, they achieve and you know i think that's it's really amazing because you just like angus talks about that in the show the um the kind of crucible of the game and and of training you know watching people break their bones and crack their heads and 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 tackling each other it's so intimate and it's so it's a world unto itself um so that that team that coral aspect it, it feels very speaking as one moving as one feels right you know um it's performative but it's also like psychologically that is kind of where they get to because it is like, you know, being on a battlefield, you know, together. Patricia, did it ever feel like after the South Australian premiere of In the Club that that was it, that it had been shelved and that you may not get to see a production again? Because I was like, that question, <laughs> that question can be to it for any of my plays, Richard. <laughs> I mean, the hardest thing in this country is to, to get your second performance and... and it's rare when a play gets picked up by other states and they're so greedy for being the the creator of the first work Premier. that they don't they won't they won't even no matter how successful the play is other other states don't pick it up anymore there used to be a bit more exchange and but it's quite rare now so no i i didn't ever think it was shelved but it kind of i felt like oh my god it got done in the first place. Well, now it's being done again, which yeah. is great. I have to say, you know, I turned 70 at the end of last year and I feel like somebody let that out, like me probably, and and now they go, we better put Cornelius on before she dies. <laughs> <laughs> and here was me thinking they were going, she is one of our eldest states people of the theatre. We must honour her. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> Uh, well, that's the way I like to think of it anyway. Thank you, Richard. Uh, in the Club uh, is being presented by Bullet Heart Club and Theatre Works. It's running from the 26th of October until the 11th of November at Theatre Works, 14 Ackland Street, St Kilda. Bookings at www.theatreworks.org.au. 
it is a compelling and powerful play and yes uh, there is coarse language adult themes and uh, the explicit retelling of sexual violence it may not be a play for everybody but I think it is a superb piece of writing and I'm really looking forward to seeing this new production Patricia and Darcy thank you both so much for joining us in the studio today thank you Richard thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts a weekly radio show bringing news reviews and interviews about the arts broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne Australia every Thursday hope you enjoy the podcast and if you have any questions or feedback feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website 